So Isaiah chapter 58 is where we're going to go. And it says this, shout it aloud, do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet, declare to my people their rebellion and the descendants of Jacob their sins. For day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. Why have we fasted, they say, and you haven't seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you haven't noticed? Yet on the day of your fasting, you, you do as you please. You exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only a day for people to supposedly humble themselves. Is it only for the bowing of one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is this not the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry and provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? Then, and this is the promise, then, everyone say then, then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear and your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer and you will cry for help and he will say, here I am. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk, if you spend yourself on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up the age-old foundations. You will be called repairer of the broken walls. And here's our word, the restorer of streets with dwellings. I want to figure out an answer to this question today. How do we restore a broken world? We know that God wants to restore us. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. It's good to have your soul be restored, but it's not enough to have your soul be restored because there's a world that needs restoration that the restored people of the Lord that have been redeemed by the Lord are supposed to restore the world and watch the world get redeemed. Can I get an amen? amen? I want to talk about the restoration of a broken world. Is it possible? How do we do it? How do we get there? That's where I'm going today. Pray with me. Jesus, help. Amen. Slap someone high five. Say restoration and have a seat. Many of you are familiar with Chip and Joanna Gaines. 
the fixer-uppers. They will go in and find a piece of property or a house that is decrepit or falling apart or been breaking down or not all that it could be or should be, and using ingenuity and creativity, they formed really a franchise on this fixing up of things that were not looking all that promising. And they go and they fix these things up, and over the course of one show, you get to watch this thing get restored and renovated and reclaimed. It's this restoration word. We are not in a world of a lot of restoration at the moment. It's a world of really anti-restoration. And it makes me love this passage so much. I, I love verse 12 when he says, Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins, raise up the foundations. You will be called repairer of the broken walls, restorer of streets of dwellings. I like what it says in the message version of this. It says, You'll use old rubble of past lives to build anew. Rebuild foundations from out of your past. You'll be known as those who can fix anything. Oh man, when I was reading this passage, I, I started dreaming that this would be said of us. They are known as those who can fix anything. Because we're in a moment right now where I think people have developed the skill of destroying anything and canceling anything and demolishing anything and critiquing anything. We're even, we love to watch YouTube clips of people getting roasted. But fixing up, it doesn't really get the clicks. Building up, it doesn't really get the viral notion of the YouTube algorithms and the Instagram shares. Restoration has never been more needed, and yes, restoration has often never, probably never been less common than it is right now, which is why God says, you'll be known as those who can fix anything. He said, you will restore the old ruins, rebuild and renovate, make the community livable again. So I was over in Morocco, and it's a, it's a Muslim country, and obviously I was on a little bit of guard. You know, you had the, this, this battle, this war between Israel and Hamas is taking place, and here's an American going to a Muslim country, and, and I was talking to all sorts of people, and one of the more surprising conversations went like this, and it happened multiple times. Hey, is this your first time to Morocco? Oh, yes. How do you like it? I love it. I love the Moroccan culture, the people. The country was incredible. I would then ask them, have you ever been to the United States? And they would say, oh, no, I've never been. I would, to which I would say, would you like to come visit sometime? To which they'd say, oh, I would never want to do that. Why would you never want to do that? They said, oh, I've seen the news. I know how violent your country is. I was like, wait, what? <laughs> I'd be afraid to go in the streets. And I was like, no, it's, it's not so violent. They're like, if I was there now, they'd say, was there a shooting at a you know, mega thing last week, you know? Yeah, was there a shooting after the Chiefs thing? Oh, yeah, I guess I reckon there was. It's all, now I'd be, I'd be so afraid. What, what do we do? Like, what, as believers, like, do we just stand by? Are, are we really just the, the political puppets that, that kind of puppet what the left and the right tell us to say about 
guns or violence or Israel or Hamas or, or teachers that are doing inappropriate things with children or clergy abuse or power abuse or, or the educational inequalities in our own city. Like, do, do we really stand by? Do we do nothing but, but make some commentary? Or are we supposed to be those that it's said of us, you'll be known as those who can fix anything? I, I just want to arouse the vision again in the church of God's people that we've got Jesus. We've got the power of Jesus. We've got the mind of Jesus. We've got the help of Jesus. We've got the resources of heaven. We are supposed to be those that we walk into a city and they would say they can fix anything. I want that again. I want us walking into cities, and by the time we're done, the cities are changed because, as they would say in the book of Acts, they made no small disturbance in that place. See, the, the whole message today is, today is this. It, it's not enough to receive restoration. We need to bring restoration. If I was summing up this sermon in, in just one line, it's, it's really just this. The people of God are supposed to be those who can fix anything. If you belong to Jesus, you joined a family of fixer-uppers because this is the God of restoration. You're in a culture where Jesus would often contrast the father of this world with his father in heaven. The father of this world is the father of lies. The God of heaven is the father of truth. We live in a world of the father of destruction. He comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus comes to give life more abundantly and to build things up. Jesus brings restoration everywhere he goes. So how do we do it? which is why this passage is just pure gold. Verse one, he says, shout it aloud. Don't hold back. Raise your voice. Tell my people their rebellion, their descendants of Jacob, their sins. I got to tell you right now, I am not critiquing the politicians as little confidence as I have in them. I'm not critiquing the powers that be as little as confidence as I may have in them. Right? This is a message where he says, go tell my people their sins. It starts by dealing with our house, our in-house. We've got to do something about our stuff. He says to them here, day after day, they seek me. You might want to put it in quotes. They seem eager to know my ways as if they were a nation that did what is right and hadn't broken my commands. They ask for just decisions, and they seem eager for God to come near them, and they say, why we fasted and you haven't come near? In other words, the people of Israel, they were complaining because their spirituality is on display, and yet there seems to be no fruits for their labors. They're going to church and praying prayers, and the prayers are not being answered. The, the setting of this would have been the Israelites, the Jewish nation, was under the discipline of God. The temple worship was basically set aside, and God's people, a lot of them were taken to other countries. But now there's been a regathering. God's people have come back. It was almost like us during the pandemic. You might remember churches had to shut down. There's been like a 70-year shutdown of God's people, and now they're coming back together. And like, oh, good, we get to worship. And they're bringing their songs, and they're singing their worship stuff, and they're preaching their sermons, and they're reading the Bible, and they're going through Torah, and they're even praying and fasting, and they're praying for things that are not coming true, and it seems like instead of light, there's darkness. Instead of prayers being answered, it seems like there's a closed heaven, and they're saying, God, what's up with this? And God says, what's up with this is this. 
You are coming to church. You're bringing your spirituality. You've become very religious. But if you are religious on the outside, but your religion from your outside doesn't make its way to the inside, to make its way to the outskirts of your church buildings, if you've got a religion that stays within the walls of your church and doesn't make it out into the streets of your city, your religion is hypocrisy. If you claim to have a relationship with me, who is the restorer, and you claim that you've got nearness to me, and I am a restorer, and then you go out into school districts, and you go out into places where there's foster systems that are broken, and, and children waiting to be taken in, and, and children that are at risk, and they're on a, on, a, on a prison pipeline straight from the third grade. If you're going into a place where you work with people that are getting divorces, and their families are falling apart, and people's minds are going crazy, and they're depressed, and they want to end their own life. If I've sent you to that job, that school, that neighborhood, that whatever, you need to know that if you are going with me, you bring restoration everywhere you go. Or call it something else. Don't call it the, the, the faith of the most high God because wherever I go, I bring restoration. And if you're going to go and just bring another comment on another Facebook post, I'm sorry, but it's not gonna cut it. The people of God are supposed to be known as those who can fix anything. My favorite piece of literature in all of American history is actually a letter from a Birmingham jail. Martin Luther King Jr. writes this while he's incarcerated on some pieces of newspaper, writes out one, arguably one of the greatest creations that we've had in American history. Let me read you a little quote. He says, the judgment of God is upon the church as never before. If today's church does not recapture the sacrificial spirit of the early church, it will lose its authenticity, forfeit the, the loyalty of millions, and be dismissed as an irrelevant social club with no meaning for the 20th century. We could fast forward this to the 21st century. Every day I meet young people whose disappointment with the church has turned into outright disgust. The words are as true today as they were at that time. God says, if you've got a churchiosity, a religiosity, a Christianity that never makes its way to what this passage describes, don't be surprised when the world around you stays disgusted with something that's missing because there's a hole in your gospel that you need to account for. How do the people of God fix anything? In a word, this passage breaks it down. Justice. I hesitate to even say it because it puts everybody on edge. Like, oh, not, not, the, not the justice word. No, not that word. Mike, you have to bring that up in church. Even though the Bible is just laden with justice left and right. When your spirituality, according to this, and I would argue according to Jesus, when your spirituality does not lead to justice, your spirituality is an empty spirituality. When your spirituality doesn't lead here, there is, there is a problem. But 
But Mike, I, I don't like the word justice because it's, uh, and, and listen, man, I get it. Even when I say it, it, it feels, it almost feels like a political word. It feels like, mm, where, are you, where, where is this going to go? We're not sure what this means. What is justice anyway? And I, and I get it, man. Justice has become a moving target. Justice is a word that is very misunderstood, has been very misconstrued, has been very misdefined. Justice is a lot like the word love. You know, we're not quite sure what someone means when they say, gosh, I love cannolis. Like, that's my favorite dessert probably is cannolis. I love cannolis. Or someone loved the Super Bowl halftime show. You knew who all the children of the 90s were because they knew all the song, the words of the song, right? Or, or, or we hear the word love, and we kind of know, like, when a 16-year-old in the backseat of a car with his girlfriend says, I love you, we know what that means. Absolutely nothing, right? We know that. It certainly doesn't mean 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient. Let's just say that, right? So when we use words like love, we know that, ah, we kind of need you to define your terms because we're not sure what it means, which leads to a problem because I'm making the case today that the way that we fix a broken world is with the justice of God. The way that we fix a broken world is with the justice that comes from heaven. The way that we fix a broken world is with true justice. The problem is, we're not quite sure what justice really is. And so today, I want to give us a little checklist of sorts of what the Scripture says about justice. The first thing we find here is when he describes this, he, he gives us this little list of things that are taking place. He says, is this what you call a fast, a, a day acceptable to the Lord? Now, what we're talking about here is I'm going to write the word God's standard. You know you've got the justice of God when you're using God's standard. I'm going to say it again. God's standard. This is not leaning left. This is not leaning right. This is not leaning you. This is not leaning me. This is leaning God. It's justice when it lines up to the verdicts of the judge. And I, I got to be real clear on this. Thank God I live in the country that I live in, but the the judicial system of the United States of America doesn't get it right every time. The legislative branch of the United States does not get it right every single time, all right? The executive branch does not get it right, which is why justice, according to God, is a, you've got justice when it lines up to the judge's verdict, not yours, not mine, not that denomination, not that denomination, not the Democratic Party, not the Republican Party, God's party. It's got to be right in the eyes of the Lord. In John 8, 15, Jesus was talking to Pharisees who were throwing shade on him. And he says to them, you don't know who I am. And he said this, this is the line, because you judge by human standards. Bam, there it is. You judge by human standards. Justice is only justice when it's judged by God's standard. Now the problem is, justice has been hijacked because if you lean progressive, you're gonna get some justice issues right. And if you lean conservative, you're gonna get some justice issues right. But what you and I have been bullied into is to have to kinda, of, and I've even had people tell me, Mike, I gotta stay on brand. Because I've asked people, I notice you'll speak up on this justice cause, but you never say anything about this justice cause. And we'll say, but I gotta stay on brand. And I'm like, when your brand is different than his brand, you need to change your brand. 
So, for example, when we come to a city like ours where there are things that are not right, something must be done. Wendy, would you join me up here? I'm going to ask Wendy to come up here, and I want Wendy, could you get some wild applause? Wendy, would you share with us some of the really restoration that we've got going on, and let's hear from your perspective. Yes, thank you. Hi, everyone. My name is Wendy Roche. I am the local missions coordinator, and right here in our city, we are regularly ranked among the most uh, vulnerable when it comes to economic challenges and educational challenges. And it's very easy to even go on about our lives and not be aware of some of the injustices that are taking place right here and even getting to fully encounter those who are the most vulnerable. And as believers, you know, we should be saying not on our watch, not on our watch that there are economic disparities, not on our watch that there are educational disparities. And for us as a church, the way we respond to those um, on a weekly basis, we are in communities. There are three different communities in Northwest, Southwest, and East Gainesville that we are in. We partner with different schools for mentorship programs and really reminding students of who they are and affirming their dignity when our world has put labels on them and reminding them that, no, you're a God's child and there's so much more for you. And we want to see students achieve regardless of their zip code. So we have tutoring programs where they are coming in each week and we are making sure that they are reading at their grade level, so the school-to-prison pipeline is not continuing to increase. Um, there's food distribution for families. We're making sure families are empowered, and that's a lot of you at our church um, just showing up each week. And even for um, those who have a carceral background, we go into correctional facilities and making sure that they have a good reentry into our communities. And the reason for those things is because we see and imagine a city that is transformed by righteousness and justice because those are the foundation of God's throne. And as God's people, um, we are image bearers and we want to remind people that, hey, you are also made in the image of God and we want to reflect him in those things. And really, um, there's nothing extraordinary about me, even one of our leaders you hear from in a little bit uh, that are going in and doing these things. It's really that we've tasted and seen the goodness of the Lord, and we've been um, restored, and we want others to experience that. So in addition to even meeting needs, we are going in and building relationships with um, just different community members and leaders. Um, So there are members of our church that actually live in those communities in East Gainesville, in Pine Ridge, doing work and getting to know people personally and getting to know their stories beyond some of the things that we are offering each week. So if you're interested in being a fixer-upper and like, hey, I want to come alongside you all and do this work and see just people thrive and see God's kingdom flourish, um, we have more information and resources for you um, in the lobby. So come see us. That's awesome, Wendy. Thank you. Christians are supposed to be those who can fix. They can fix anything. They can fix, and we do it by God's standard. So our standard is God's. So 
we, we, we embrace what God says about you name what the issue is, and we go there. The second thing, though, the, the way you know it's real justice, like how do you know when it's real justice? It's got to be by God's standard, okay? I'm, well, actually, let me back up. Let me read you a little more. Let me read you a little more from letter from a Birmingham jail. I would agree with St. Augustine who said an unjust law is no law at all. Now, what's the difference between the two? How does one determine whether a law is just or unjust? A just law is a man-made code that squares with the moral law of God. An unjust law is a code that is out of harmony with the moral law. To put it in the terms of St. Thomas Aquinas, an unjust law is a human law that is not rooted in eternal law and natural law. Any law that uplifts human personality is just. Any law that degrades human personality is unjust. We should never forget that everything Adolf Hitler did in Germany was, quote, legal, and everything the Hungarian freedom fighters did in Hungary was illegal. It was illegal to aid and comfort a Jew in Hitler's Germany, even so I'm sure that had I lived in Germany at the time, I would have aided and comforted my Jewish brothers. What does this mean? This means that you and I need to know if we are waiting for popular opinion to tell us what justice is, we are going to be mistaken and we will get an error. This means that if you're only basing your justice issues on what your political inclinations have told you, you're going to be mistaken because justice is based on the standard of God not the morals of humans that go nuts with every generation. Every generation has a unique set of ungodliness that goes and ebbs and flows in different ways. Next generation, it will be different, which is why if you're a teacher having to stand for righteousness in, in this culture right now, let me just say, we pray for you in the name of Jesus for you to be a bastion of God's righteousness and justice in the place where you are. Stick with the standard of God and don't bow to the fear of man in Jesus' name. You know it's justice when it's got God's standard. You also know it's justice, though, when it leads to restoration. Now, now this is big because I will talk to people, and, and I feel like I've got this little sign on my face that says, ask me, I'm a sucker. Because people come up to me all the time, they say, hey, I, where do you stand on the Israel-Hamas, Israel-Palestine thing? I'm like, Oh, just go ahead and call me stupid and let me give you a, an answer to go take some quote. Friends, let me, let me just say this. As a follower of Jesus Christ, if your heart is not moved when bombs are dropping and you've got little boys and girls and women and children and, and you'll have hundreds and hundreds of people that are dying to be able to go and, and find a, uh, to, to kill a leader. And the idea would be when someone's like, yeah, well, it's, it's war. That's just collateral damage. If your heart is unmoved by bloodshed by the hundreds and thousands, I just want to ask you, are you sure you've plugged your heart into Jesus yet? Likewise, I was over in Morocco, and when I was there, I would talk to people, and that was one of the first questions they asked, which was, hey, Mike, where do you stand? What's your, what's your take on this, everything going on with Israel? I'm like, well, where do you stand? To which they would say, from the river to the sea. I would say, well, what does that mean to you? They'd say, it means Israel has no right to exist. Every Jew needs to be wiped out, and God's going to bless whoever does that. I'm like, oh, okay. If you think that's justice, if you see, see, the way, one of the ways that you know it's justice is when there's restoration. If you think justice is just wipe a people out, like just wipe out those Palestinians, just wipe out those Jews. If, if you think that's restoration, well, Michael, who do you stand with? Friends, let me give you what Christians should be saying. If you follow Jesus Christ, who do you stand with? 
We stand with the vulnerable. If someone is vulnerable and you follow Jesus, because when I'm reading this, what he says is, isn't this the fast that I've chosen? Untie the cords of the yoke, set the oppressed free, break every yoke, share your food with the hungry, provide the poor wanderer with shelter. When you see the naked, clothe them. Don't turn away from your own flesh. This is what he's, when someone is vulnerable, when someone is weak, when someone is needy, when someone is broke as a joke, when someone is downcast and poor, those are the people Jesus says, I send you. To which you'd say, well, Jesus, you would go lay your hands on people. And he says, exactly, you are my hands. What does justice look like? It's only justice when it's leading to restoration. If you think justice is, get rid of Israel, get rid of Palestinians, cancel that person, roast him, demolish her, everybody gang up on that. See, it's weird. We live in a moment right now, people are, they're basically just tearing down and they're calling it justice. I just want to make sure you understand this. If there is no restoration coming, you haven't done justice. All you've done is vengeance, and vengeance belongs to God. It's funny to me. It's, it's, it's curious to me. I will talk to people. They're opposed to the notion of hell. And by the way, there is a hell. And I've, I've talked to many people. They're like, it offends me that God has a God of hell where people will be ultimately done and canceled. But the same people, I will watch them on social media, although they don't believe a hell that God judges, they believe in a hell on earth that they get to judge. And although they're against a God who cancels people ultimately, even though they've been given all these chances and opportunities to respond to his goodness, it's interesting, they will bring hell to people on earth and call it justice, and I'm just letting you know, when restoration is not in the conversation, that is not justice, it's something else. I, I really, I, I know everybody feels like Martin Luther King Jr. is kind of like rated G these days. Go read all his stuff. Like, don't just, re, don't just listen to, like, you know, the, the, you know, I have a dream speech, okay? And don't just take two quotes out. The, the man was bringing subversive words to bear, and there was, there was a cut, there was an edge, but it was the, you would hear him say, it was, the, it was the scalpel of a surgeon that's trying to restore the health. He wasn't just trying to save his people. He said, I'm trying to save the soul of America, because if there is not mutual restoration taking place, we're all doomed. Church, we've got to return to the scriptural call to justice. Let, let me read you. These are letters from children in the Bronx. Dear Mr. Kuzel, we do not have things that you have. This is a child that's writing from a school that 95% black and brown students, um, very, very underfunded, very under-resourced. They said this, we don't have the things you have. You have clean things. We do not. You have clean bathroom. We do not have that. You have parks. We do not have parks. You have all the things that we do not have, all the thing. Can you help us? So there's a letter written to this, this person. The letter from this child, her name was Aaliyah, came in a fat envelope with 27 letters from a class of third grade children in the Bronx. Other letters that the students wrote, they said things like this. We don't have no gardens, no music or art, no fun places to play. One child said, is there a way to fix this problem? To which I, I always have people say, Mike, just, just preach the gospel. 
Friends, if our gospel doesn't fix problems, our gospel is a false gospel. Listen, man, I get it. It starts with Jesus getting inside of us, but if the Jesus inside of us doesn't get out of us, I question if he ever got in you. Another note concerns, um, you, you hear the concerns of these overcrowded schools. They said, we have a gym, but it's, it's for lining up. I think that's not fair. The one that affected this person the most that was written by someone named Elizabeth, she said, it is not fair that other kids have a garden and new things. We don't have that. I wish that this school was the most beautiful school in the whole wide world. Think of it this way, said a 16-year-old girl sitting beside her. If people in New York woke up one day and learned that we were gone, that we had simply died or left for somewhere else, how would they feel? How do you think they'd feel? I asked. She said, I think they'd be relieved. And yet you and I know that for God so loved Elizabeth, that God's eyes are on Elizabeth and Aaliyah and Tom and Billy and Terrence and kids in Carver Gardens and kids in North, South, East, West, Gainesville, all over Florida, there's a God who loved them so much he gave everything for them and yet they do not know it. What could be worse than being loved and not feeling it? What could be worse than being cared for and not be aware? What could be worse than having been paid for by his own blood and the messengers that were sent to them, will not speak the language necessary because when you get to Morocco, it's not enough to speak English. You got to speak Arabic. It's not enough to speak Arabic. You got to speak Darija. And if you want to go into the streets of America right now, it's not enough to speak religious. You got to speak justice if you want them to hear your righteousness. And if the church doesn't learn our language again, we're going to lose a world that is dying for the God that adores them. And we have in this room right now the potential for revivals of restoration and recovery and recuperation and rebuilding. I want us to be known as those who can fix anything. We have one more testimony. Ada, would you come on up here and would you bring this testimony? I want you to hear just this, this, this story of restoration because you know it's justice when restoration happens. It's, don't, don't talk to me about justice when you canceled somebody. That's not justice. That was your vengeance. I want to hear some restoration. And I want you to know that Jesus knows how to do it. And I want us to be a part. And there's a lot of ways that you can be a part in our church, in our city, in a lot of these ways. But I want you to hear this testimony right now. Would you come bring it for us? Hi, my name is Ada. And... <laughs> I'm a student at the University of Florida, and I'm one of the tutors at the Carver Gardens Tutoring Program. So our program, we help to improve the literacy skills of students within the program so that their reading abilities, they have more confidence, and so that transfers to school performances and just in life, because reading is a fundamental skill. So for me, one of the shocks that like really stood out to me when I first started tutoring was that the girl I was paired with, she did not like me. She looked me up and down, and she was like, who is this person trying to help me? No, thank you. So basically, I was just like, okay. And I was just kept showing up every week. And week after week, she'd do the same thing. She'd be very closed off. But after maybe like a month, she started opening up to me. She started warming up. She started showing me her personality, laughing. And it just genuinely felt like we really made a connection. Like, I got to connect with her on a deeper level. But then I also got to teach her, like, reading skills. And it was very cool. 
And I really just like thought that that really stood out to me because God showed me that, yes, we're bringing justice to our city city by like helping to establish and bridge educational and financial gaps, but also we're helping to restore right relationship with people and with God himself. Because a lot of these kids, they don't have stable relationships with adults. So they see them and they put walls up because they're like, no, I don't want you to hurt me if you leave. But through our consistent tutoring programs, every Thursday, 4.30 to 7, we see the same kids and we're able to connect with them, show them that we're not going anywhere. We're going to be here for you. You can let us in. And most importantly, you can let God in. Because like without him, there is no restoration. So we try to like do that every single week. And we teach the kids through, right now we're learning Psalm 23, verse 4. Like, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. We're teaching them that, like, you can depend on God to comfort you. You can depend on him to be there for you. And so we teach them, like, whether you stay in tutoring or not, like, you're always going to be special to us, but most importantly to Jesus. So we're agents of restoration. That's so good. As her side gig, sometimes she comes and helps me do sermon preparation on Thursdays. So uh, just so you know, some of what you get today, she's one of the uh, originators of some of that. You know it's justice when it brings restoration. Let me tell you other ways. Have any of you ever met Bree? In our kids' ministry, Bree. So Bree works here in the kids' ministry. I don't know if you've ever watched Bree with children, but one of the things we try to do in our children's ministry is we want to be able to help kids of all abilities, of all backgrounds, all kinds of situations that they would be in. Here's the reality. There are some children that have experienced some things, some traumatic lives, that it is very, very difficult for them to be in situations other people just take for granted. It's also very hard to even be able to go to church when there's no one that can even handle the challenges that are there. Brie, if you've ever watched her, she has this superpower from Jesus that when no one else can calm a child down and speak the child's language, if you've ever watched this, it is unbelievable to watch a child who's having the hardest time because of what things that has nothing to do with anything they ever did wrong, right? And they're going through this, and Brie can get in their place, in their face, in their space, and love them and share the love of Jesus in a way that is miraculous. One time I was over there in kids' ministry, though, and when I, when I walk in, I, I just, I'm just kind of doing my little thing, taking note of what's going on, and Bree's back in the tech booth. She's like doing the tech in the sound booth, to which I'm asking Bree, what are you doing in the sound booth? To which she says, well, we, we didn't have enough you know, leaders to be in all the sp- spaces today, so we had to take me, because she just kind of will roam around sometimes so she can be there for all those other needs. And in my heart, I'm thinking, man, I don't want Bree in the tech booth. I want Bree out there with these children ready to do her superpower magic with them. If you hate the word magic, you know what I'm saying, right? That, that's what I want her doing. So do you, want, do you understand when we say things like, let's go do justice that restore, there might be some of you, all you're like, the only thing I can do is like click things in a tech booth with children. Great, go get out there, go click things in a children's tech booth so Bree can go do her superpower. That's what justice looks like. Sometimes justice looks like, you got a man that's like, man, I'm not really good at anything, but Brooke needs help with her. We have so many even at-risk boys in our youth ministry, teenage boys. In my microchurch recently, we went around, who, what teacher most influenced you? Almost every one of the men mentioned a man. Boys need men in their lives to speak into their lives. You got, you got some man, he might be like, he goes there and you got some 16-year-old boy, starts talking and the guy, and the man, the leader's just like, ugh. 
And he's like, and he talks, Ugh. and then they're all done. And all he did was grunt. And the young person's like, man, I love the way he listens to me. <laughs> you could say, what is that? That's called doing restoration in someone's life. Because there is no restoration without people. There is no restoration unless we're willing. So for some of us, it's, it's our giving. This is why we do support people like Missionary Sam. This is why we've got a restoration fund in our church that there's people every single month that give into a restoration fund where, where descendants of slaves get, get help with education and housing situations to where, where they get, there's uplifting that takes place. If you do nothing but tithe in this church, literally your funds are being used to do justice that brings restoration. I mean, I, I long for people to say about greenhouse, those people can fix anything. They can fix anything. You, you know it's justice when it's God's standards. And some of you need to hear this. Don't bow. Some, you can't compromise God's standard of the divinity of Christ or God's standard of sexuality or God's standard of what he says about a plethora of issues. It's God's standard, but it's got to bring restoration. But at the end of the day, it's got to point to Jesus. Oh my gosh, man. The original Bible didn't have chapter divisions. This is chapter 58. Chapter 59 goes like this. Verse one, it's not up on the screen. Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. The message of scripture is that sin itself separates us from God. We need a savior, and his name is Jesus. The justice we have, it's got to point to Jesus. I have zero confidence in justice without Jesus. I have no confidence in moral programs that are not grounded and founded in the way of Jesus. And so I just, I end the sermon really pointing to him. I'll tell you a couple of stories, and I'm just going to call it a day. Jesus tells this story. Number one, there was a woman who was treated unjustly. She had been hurt and abused and taken advantage of, and she goes to the judge, and she cries out to the judge. By the way, this is Luke 18. She cries out to the judge, give me justice. She cries out for justice against her adversary. Now, by the way, I want to say this. We do believe in forgiveness. It is also appropriate to pray for justice against your adversary. You can do that. It's biblical. At the end of this parable, Jesus says, the, the judge, he's not even a good guy, but he gets so sick and tired of hearing this woman bother him that he finally says, give the woman justice. Will not your Father in heaven give justice to those who cry out day and night? He says, nevertheless, when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on the earth? In other words, don't give up your heart of justice, but connect your heart of justice with God. It is appropriate to cry out for justice. Everyone say justice. But then he tells a second parable in the same setting. And it's pretty subversive because it's unclear how it fits. He says there were two people that went up to pray at the temple. One was a Pharisee and one was a tax collector. The Pharisee looked around, and I like this passage in Isaiah 58. It says, the pointing of the finger and the malicious talk. The Pharisee, like a Psalm 58 hypocrite, he pointed his finger and with malicious talk, he prayed. He said, oh God, I thank you that I'm not like all these sinners, all these perverts, all these sexually immoral, all the thieves. I'm not like, I thank you that I'm not like all of them. But there was a second person that went up to the temple who was a tax collector. 
They were known for being cheats and swindlers. They were turncoats on their own race. They were known for being sinners. When sinners were being coupled with another people group, it was called the tax collectors and sinners. They were synonymous with sinner itself. He says the sinner goes up, this tax collector, but he does not lift his head and puff his chest. He beats his brow and he says, God have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says one of them went away justified and the other remained condemned. What's the lesson? I believe it's this. We must be those that cry out for justice against our adversaries. But if you cry out for justice, but your next move is not an immediate beating of your breast for mercy, you're going to become self-righteous. You're going to pick and choose your causes. You're going to look down on other people. And in your quest for justice, you'll lose restoration. You'll never get to Jesus. And you're going to condemn the people around you, giving up the mercy that you need for Jesus to make you right, which is humility, which is why in Micah 6, it says, what does the Lord require of us? Do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly. And our world has not seen this. Our world has seen some whataboutism justice here and a little whataboutism justice there. What our world hasn't seen is what really got started with the civil rights movement of this, this Jesus-directed, Jesus-bred-led, instigated justice that brings restoration and points people to him. The reality about you and me is this. Those parables, they let me remember, wait a minute, I have been oppressed by people, and here's the humbling part, and I have been an oppressor. The, the, the Israel-Hamas conflict, the, reality, the subversive reality is you're talking about oppressed people, but also oppressed people. All of us are mixtures of we've been oppressed and we've oppressed. I've been done wrong and I've done wrong. Oh God, I beat my breast. Lord, give me mercy. I bow myself, make me, this is why I want us to be a humble church. I want us to go do justice, but I want us to do it humbly with mercy. And when someone doesn't agree with us on, you name the issue, sexuality or social justice or whatever the issue is, we give them mercy and we give them patience because we know that we are just tax collectors ourselves that stand by the grace of God alone. And I long for us to be those people that when they look at us, they would say, instead of canceling, instead of destroying, they, they can fix anything. Put something in our hands and they could fix anything. I'll just end it like this. If, and I come back to this from time to time. If, if you, put, you put a basketball in my hands, you got a $29.99 toy from Dick's Sporting Goods. But if you put a basketball in the hands of LeBron James, you've got... You've got like a $70 million a year contract and a guy that might be the greatest player that's ever played because it really depends on whose hands that it's in. If, if you put a baseball in my hands, it's going to be nothing but a $5 trinket. But if you put a baseball in the hands of Shohei Otani, you just got a $700 million contract over 10 years because that man can pitch and that man can hit because really it depends on whose hands that the ball is in. You put a tennis racket in my hands and you got a little bit of a comedy show to watch me go play some tennis. But you put a tennis racket in the hands of Serena Williams and you've got the most successful tennis player in probably the history of at least women's tennis, maybe all of tennis, $100 million of award winnings that she's done because it really depends on whose hands that it's in. 
You put a camera in my hands, and you've got a little family fun night where we laugh at some comedy, comedic, you know, little deals that we did as a family, but no one should ever look at them again. But you put a camera in the, in the hands of, of Tyler Perry, and you've got a $330 million first African-American-owned, you know, movie studio in all of America that's got a six-lane highway, and it's got landscapes of, of Europe and, and, and America, and it's got a, a mock White House and a mock jail cell. And, I mean, because it really depends on whose hands that the camera is in. If you put a rod in my hands, I might be able to keep a wild animal away for a minute, but if you put a rod into the hands of Moses, you've got the opening of the Red Sea and the deliverance of the children of Israel because it all depends on whose hands that it's in. If you put a slingshot in my hands, you got a little toy with not much accuracy, but you put a slingshot in the hands of little David and you got a giant that's coming down on a people of God that are being set free and oppression that gets overtaken because it all depends on whose hands that it's in. And if you put some nails in my hand, you might get a birdhouse. But if you put nails in the hands of Jesus Christ, nails in the feet of Jesus Christ, you've got the salvation of humanity, the forgiveness of our sins, the turning of our shame, the working of our justice, the mercy being dispensed, the grace of God amazing our souls, the humility of God being displayed because it all depends on whose hands it's in. This man can fix anything. This king can fix anything. Are you a sinner? He can fix you. Are you depressed? He can fix you. Are you stuck? He can fix you. Are you lost? He can find you. Wherever you are, he can fix it. Because it all depends on whose hands that it's in. Mike, what are you saying? Put yourselves in the hands of Jesus and watch your life be restored.